Hey, we're here. We're live. Thanks for everyone who's here already. Let's get started. Um, welcome back to Culture Binge, guys. This is the Wisecrack Podcast where we explore what the hell is going on in the cultural zeitgeist. I'm your host, Michael Burns. Joined, as always, by a woman who once told me that the only thing worth hoping for in all of life is a good nap, Serby. <laughs> Serby, how are you today? I'm well rested. How are you? Oh, it's so good to hear. Uh, and this week we're joined by special guest, writer and philosopher, and however else he wants to be described, uh, Tom Wyman. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Hello. Uh, so we're going to get into a lot today. Um, so we'll we'll check in on our good friend, the Delta variant, the thing that's currently ruining everyone's hot vax summer. Um, and then, very excited, we're going to dive into Tom's new book, which is called Infinitely Full of Hope, talk about his work, and, you know, maybe to have the big debate on whether uh, everyone should have kids or not. And Tom's going to tell you for once and for all today, so you can either, after listening to this, get a vasectomy or your tubes tied, or immediately start trying to procreate with the consenting partner of your choice. Um, but first, as everyone knows, we're going to do our slaps and chaps. This is stuff... We're liking this week and stuff we're kind of hating this week. Serby, you look like you're full of of slap and chap energy. Um, you want to get us started? Sure. So uh, what slaps is that I don't have COVID. Um, it was just yeah, altitude that's an sickness important update. last week. Yes. I was thrilled. Um, I got a test. It was negative and it was just altitude sickness. I'm feeling a lot better now. Um, what chaps is that I am... Just feeling a little down because it seems like COVID's back on the rise and I was feeling so hopeful. So now it just sort of feels like wah, wah, wah. Wow. So now the theme of today's episode is hopelessness. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Tom, are you good with jumping in, in on this one? Do you have a, a slap and a chap? <laughs> oh, my my, uh, my life's just one, uh, one endless neutral gray. Um <laughs> No, um, I mean, I think what uh, slaps <laughs> at the moment, um, well, my uh, son, he's just turned two, he started Aww, saying, he's, 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 he's very into grapes, and he calls them babes, oh, um, that's very yeah. funny, so that's that's why I live for him at the moment, to hear him ask me for babes, <laughs> and uh, what chaps, um, I mean, you know, it's it's too hot. I don't like the summer. It's it's summer, and it's too hot. Um, I'd like it to be. I think ten degrees is warm enough. So I'd like oh. it to. You go. You in LA? I'm sure. I hate it here. You're in the you're in the right place to complain about summer heat. Summer is my least favorite season, and I think it's psychotic that people get excited about hot weather. Yeah, I don't understand it. Yeah, no. and, and when people are excited about it, and then as soon as it happens, they're like, oh, I can't sleep. I can't do anything. <laughs> I mean, obviously, in it, it's different in parts of the world, maybe where like you're prepared for hot weather. But everything in in the UK is designed to be cold. Um, it's designed to be about sort of a few degrees colder than it it is now. Of course, everything is a bit outmoded, oh, so it does get far too hot. Yeah. Um, even though when you look at the temperatures elsewhere in the world, you're like, Jesus Christ! I don't know if anyone ever cope. Um, okay. So yeah. Anyway, um, so I'm not cut out for that weather at all. And uh, so I just built like a flower. I, I, but see, I do think like, you know, one doesn't think of the UK as a super hot place, but some of those miserably hot times of my life have been in the UK just because like living in a place that is not, has, has no built in system for air. So you just open the windows and you hope for the best. And there's just this overwhelming, like warm, damp, enveloping blanket of death. And well, if you're on a shocking. university campus, you're lucky if they haven't got the central heating on year-round. Yeah. So, um, yeah, on like summer days, you just sat next to a radiator. Um, God. Well, this is officially an anti-summer podcast, so... <laughs> uh, we have like any... kind of people of Irish descent solidarity, I think, as well, yeah. Definitely. Um, so, you know, if we have any friends in, in Northern Europe or Patagonia that want to offer us a place to stay during the summer, please let <laughs> us know. Um, I'll do a quick slap and a chap. Um, my slap will be very basic, a TV thing. Um, I'm really enjoying the show, The White Lotus on HBO, a Mike White show. 
It's kind of about like the neurotic misery of rich people. But it's really interesting because I think the show isn't like this external critique of wealth in like a succession type way. It's sort of just a deep dive into the emotional lives of a lot of messed up people who are oddly relatable and some of whom are trying to do good things. Extra points in the show that the angsty teenagers have been reading Freud, Nietzsche, Franz Fanon, and one other scholar at this poolside resort. And it's just very funny to see like the random uh, philosophy and psychoanalysis references in these teenagers' books. So that's fun. Um, My chap, I guess this relates to last week's topic. Um, I'm a bad person with no political solidarity, so I've been watching the Olympics. The most annoying thing about it, though, because at least for us, we're like 14 hours behind Tokyo. Um, A lot of good stuff happens in the middle of the night. But rather than let you like watch it on a streaming service or app, NBC holds some of the most the things people want to watch the most to show on their primetime coverage, which takes place 18 hours after the events happen, which means if you want to watch it without knowing who won certain things, you can't look at the news all day because the newspaper, the New York times in the morning will be like this gymnast won this thing, but you can't fucking watch it for 12 hours. It's just very frustrating. Um, and yeah, but I haven't been enjoying watching it. I think watching track and swimming are the best. I like sports where there's no judges and time is the only evaluator of victory. So there's no debate. You know, he or she who is fastest wins. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. a good point. I feel like my interest in the Olympics has decreased this time around because I keep seeing who won everything. Yeah. So it just takes the joy out a little bit. Um, yeah, but my sneaky fun thing, I, I've watched late night diving a couple nights recently. Ooh. Very fun. Very scary. Don't know how very they do scary. it. Um, uh, some great, some great British divers as well. So I, I know that Tom has to be beaming with pride. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> I've been paying attention to the Olympics as well. Why not? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mostly what I see about the Olympics is people bitching about the athletes who beat them. Like no one's ever good enough now to actually win anything. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, um, in the, it's just, every day you just hear a story about like some athletes said, well, they shouldn't have won. Um, you know, they belong to the wrong organization or like, you know, um, they don't count as a woman for whatever stupid reason I've cooked up. You know, um, it's just, uh, it's actually because it's not just about who's the fastest or anything like this. It's about who's the fastest according to the Olympics weird guidelines. Yeah, of course, of course. Like, I mean, in the um, 800 meters have been like, or which, is it 800 or 1500, have been, um, uh, just designed specifically to keep Castor Semenya from winning. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. just, like, what's the point? I mean, if you're in that competition, like, what, do, what do you like? You get your gold medal and you're like, oh, I'm definitely the best. Yeah. The IOC yeah. has very arbitrary standards for like, they, they basically like, yeah, they're, they're, they're like testosterone level thing is nuts. Um, obviously the same thing in the women's 100. Um, Shikari Richardson not being in it means that like, it's hard to say anyone really won that. She would have definitely meddled. So, okay, so they're bad now. Um, but <laughs> one thing is fun to watch. Watch, if anyone wants to watch the Olympics, watch the women's skateboarding. It's so much fun. I was watching women's park last night. Most of the competitors are 13, 14, 15-year-olds, just the oh, wow. coolest kids in the fucking world. And I made the comment to my partner last night that if we had a child... And, you know, she was a 13 year old Olympic skateboarder that I would have to get institutionalized because all I would do is cry with pride <laughs> and I wouldn't be able to stop. And then her friends would be like, why is your dad an institution? And she'd have to be like, because he cries when I do kickflips. <laughs> so um, but, you know, Tom would know more about the pride of parenting. But let, let's yeah. get into we before we, yeah. we win Olympic gold. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah. Um, so before we let Tom teach us about why we should maybe be a little bit hopeful, let's talk about something that makes us all feel hopeless. Um, quick little first topic today is the Delta variant. And we talked about this last week a bit because, um, spoiler alert, I got it, as, as many people um, in Los Angeles have recently. I actually got to go on CNN and talk about it, too. So look up that clip if you want. Did kids. you really? Uh, yeah, I'll send it to you later, Survey. It's ridiculous. Um, I, I got I, I was the poster boy for people who are vaccinated, who got it, who are, quote unquote, mad. And the CNN reporter tried to bait me into being like unvaccinated people are trash. But I just like talked a lot about like, 
historic inequality and how we test out drugs in this country and how some people have a right to be skeptical. And then I kind of ranted about how public health is really a communist issue. They cut (laughs) all of that. Um, (laughs) How did you even get, how did they even contact you? A friend of a friend is a CNN producer. And I guess they were just like, we need to find someone that meets these standards. And then the CNN host didn't like me because when he started the interview, I kind of jokingly was like, he was like, this is about the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. And I was like, oh, cool. So you're trying to bait me into doing a culture war. And he did not (laughs) find that funny at all. The cameraman did, though. Shouts to him. That guy ruled. But (laughs) um, the Delta variant is a thing. And it's been a weird week, right? This, um, at least on this side of the pond, the CDC put out a report that was super scary. It said things like, this is more contagious than chicken pox. It can be just as transmittable by people who are already vaccinated. Um, It showed that, you know, the vaccines still work very well against the worst stuff, like dying and hospitalization, but slightly less effective. Um, against catching it. There's also been the weird thing we talked about this last week that the narrative for so long has been if a vaccinated vaccinated person gets it, you just get like a bad cold for a few days. I don't know, as myself and like a lot of people, my immediate circle can attest, that's not true. I'm over two weeks in and still trying to get over my lingering cough. Um, The one piece of maybe hope I saw this week was a New York Magazine piece written by um, David Wallace Wells, who's a good climate and science writer, interviewed some people who seem relatively smart. And there was one quote um, saying that they think in America will probably like this will peak out in September. And that was based on modeling from Dr. Wyman's native UK, um, where I guess you technically live in the future, Tom, because you guys have already supposedly had your like Delta variant wave. So out of curiosity, maybe I'll start with you. Like, how is how has it felt over there? Because I feel like didn't you all have like your freedom day where Lord Boris said everything was good again, but at the same time, rates were increasing, but now things are better. So what do things feel like from the future of COVID? Um, I mean, I think like in the UK, uh, there's sort of there's sort of this like sort of a big <coughs> contrast in attitudes to what between people who are like obviously um, still terrified and um, are really worried about the sort of quite laissez-faire policies the government's pursuing in relation to the pandemic and people who really just want to sack everything off. We're just like, you know, not playing this anymore, not doing the, we're not doing having a pandemic anymore. And it's just sort of like, well, um, you know, if we just say, think that it's not happening and maybe it won't. Um, so uh, the government has to cater to those people more. Um, and uh, like around the time of the Delta variant surge, obviously lots of people were you know, getting the Delta variant. Um, and there's this pingdemic because we've got this centralized app here, which you're meant to use the NHS app. Or if your phone has been in con- like nearby the phone of someone who uh, tests positive, then um, they, uh, you know, then it will tell you you need to self-isolate basically. Um, and this had a, has had a major disruptive effect on al- already like hospitality. Everything is is very understaffed. It's had a major effect. Lots of places have had to close. Um, having only just opened up and that sort of thing. So we've got the government, um, very, we're very, very worried about that um, because basically, effectively, we sort of had a sort of de facto lockdown for a couple of weeks and that sort of led to, led to the uh, curve being flattened a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, and they're sort of like, I mean, uh, they're now saying or starting to say if you double vax, you don't have to isolate and that sort of thing, which I'm not sure if there's a basis in science or that. It's just vibes. But that's how, that's how the UK government has always has always done this. It's just kind of like um, they just sort of like seem to have imagined their voters and then gone, what what will my average voter be bothered to do? Uh, and then just pitched all of the restrictions to that. And right now, what the average Conservative voter can be bothered to do is is nothing um, to help prevent the virus from spreading. Really, maybe not coughing on people. That's it. And so, um, uh, yeah. Um, it's weird because obviously, like, you know, it's because the numbers are going down at the moment. I think they're still going down as of today. Yeah. Because they're going down, people aren't so worried about it, even though lots of people are getting and lots of people are in hospital. Um, so it is this sort of weird thing where it's like, I mean, all the time our experience of a pandemic has been so 
mediated through what the media is, is saying about them because all the messages coming out of the government are just totally laissez-faire now. All the press are just like, you know, not So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, well, thank you for that's interesting. You there. I hope we hope it keeps going down for you and your country's sake. Um, now, Serbi, I'm curious about your perspective on this. I know that on my end, like a month ago, I was like going over to friends' houses a lot more liberally. I had even had my first night of like going to a bar, sitting inside with some friends. Got very excited. I was like, this feels like life. Had gone to the movie a couple movies a couple of times, blah, blah, blah. Now I'm back to just like, I don't know what I should be doing right now. I don't know what feels good. Serby, so how is like the rise of Delta and you're, you know, also in Southern California? How has that affected like your attitude towards what you're doing? Have you shifted a lot? Have you not? Are you scared? Are you not? Like, how are you feeling about all this? I'm not scared, but I have shifted. I mean, I wasn't like back in the open. Um, I did travel for a wedding a couple weeks ago, but I was still very, very careful and things. And um, so it, I think I'm, I'm feeling like back to not wanting to go to the grocery store or maybe not wanting to see friends and things like that. So um, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm just back to being careful right now while there's not a lot of information out there. And then, you know, if it's not that bad, then I'll venture out a little bit again, but I'm not still not comfortable like eating indoors or things like that. Yeah. I mean, I do think the weirdest thing with all this, and I think that I think in this country as well, you know, Tom talked right then about how, you know, the the response and the messaging behind the government is more about what do voters want to hear than what is like scientific reality. And, you know, I think we've had uh, maybe a lesser extent of that at the federal level. At the state level, we definitely have that because we have a couple states like uh, Texas and Florida in particular, where the governors have been like, yeah, things are getting really bad, but whatever, we're not, we're not enforcing any new restrictions. Um, mm-hmm. And recently, I guess like Biden yesterday or two days ago kind of called those governors out, but, you know, we're really seeing the problem with this whole uh, constitutional system of states with their own governments in this country. Um, and we are seeing a little bit too of like, I think we had this rush over here where the government wanted to use the 4th of July as this time to be like, freedom is real. America's open. It's all good. And then literally three weeks later, it was like, oh shit. So <laughs> I, you know, I think there's been that rush to do good political PR um, rather than, than communicate. And I do think that's sort of not at all to be like a truther or sound come off as anti-science. But I think one of the biggest things we've seen is just like a failure of science and public health communication and even at the local level, um, the Los Angeles County Department of Health put out this graphic that was like, what happens if you're vaccinated? What happens if you're not vaccinated? And the graphic literally made it seem like if you're vaccinated, it's more dangerous because they used weird colors. And the way they indicated safety was red X's. The way they indicated being unvaccinated is bad is green check marks. And a friend sent that to me and I was like, what the fuck? Who in the public health office was like, you know, it'll make people feel good. Red X's, which mark the healthy thing. So I really hope after like all. really poor UX. Like very poor. What the fuck? So I don't know. We'll check in on this. I just can't believe that. Uh, I mean, I don't want to look back now, but we've, you know, intermittently checked in on this pandemic on this podcast for so long now. <laughs> Hopefully it stops. We'll just say this again. And if you live someplace where you can get vaccinated, get vaccinated, be safe. If you live in a country where you can't yet, I'm sorry. That's likely the fault of America. Uh, the WHO <laughs> just said they want us to not give people boosters so other people can get vaccines. I think that's a good idea. Um, and know that Serbia and I have no involvement in federal level policy of this country. And if we did, we'd be shipping you vaccines ourselves. Um, okay, so let's let's move on to, to maybe a more hopeful topic. But first, um, just we wanted to give a quick shout out uh, to this episode's sponsor, Upstart. Now, uh, this does make me think of something that came up when I was reading Tom's book. There's one of the good things about it, and we'll talk about this, is the weaving of personal narrative and with philosophical reflection. And, and Tom talks about in the book about what it's like to be a a broke postgraduate student using your overdraft to pay rent. Um, it reminded me of times in my life where I was afraid that a, a British bank was going to tell me that I couldn't use their money anymore to pay for life's necessities. Um, and, and that's a scary feeling. And carrying debt is a scary feeling. And I'm sure that we've all had that at some point. Um, Upstart 
is trying to help us make that final payment so we can get ahead. So Upstart is a fast and easy way to pay off debt with a personal loan all online. And whether it's paying off credit cards, high interest debt, funding personal expenses, over half a million people use Upstart to get one fixed monthly payment. Because it's hard when you have a bunch of different debts you're trying to pay at once. Um, I know that. I got a scary email from the student loan company today. Um, Upstart knows that you're more than just your credit score and is expanding access to affordable credit. Unlike other lenders, Upstart considers your income and current employment to find you a smarter rate on your loan. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. That's a lot. You can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So if this sounds of interest to you, you can find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today by going to upstart.com slash wisecrack. That's upstart.com slash wisecrack. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. I can only assume they send us bags of free money if you use our link. So please do that. Um, Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. So go to upstart.com slash wisecrack because debt sucks, but we're all going to live with it for the rest of our lives. Um, Now that we've said that, let's get into it. We've just referenced this before. Tom's here. We're going to talk about his book, Infinitely Full of Hope. Um, to give a little bit of background, Tom, so you are, um, you know, you're a writer, you're a philosopher, you, you did a, a whole ass uh, PhD, so you're a real doctor and everything. You've taught at a few universities in the UK. Um, let me ask you this, because for a lot of people who, you know, come out of the academic philosophy world, their, their goal is like, how can I write? a very obscure technical book that will be published by a university press that 40 people in the world will buy. Hopefully some libraries will buy the copies that cost 113 pounds or whatever. And then I will be a success. You, on the other hand, have written a book that's written in language that's accessible to most people, that's published with a publisher that's making it readily available, and is at a price point where most people with some discretionary income can afford to actually read the book. And you've even promoted this book in non-academic places like the New York Times and like a cool food podcast, um, to name a couple. So... uh, how did this come about? You know, how are you breaking all the rules of what a philosopher is supposed to write and writing a book that people might actually read? Um, um, well, uh, well, Michael, I have no um, like intuitive grasp of social norms, so um, <laughs> I have, so I don't really ever internalize anything that's expected of me. Okay. Um, uh, um, I've always been free to just do whatever I'm inclined to at any given point. Um, so, I mean, uh, I think, like, yeah, it's just, um, you know, I, obviously we've both sort of come from the same world in, in, in some yeah. respects. So, you know, I've sort of, uh, yeah, I've spent, I've done my PhD. I've spent a couple of years sort of teaching precariously. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess I could have written a sort of dry academic book in an attempt to, impress other academics and get an academic job but it just seemed like you know a sort of sunk cost there's a sort of sunk cost fallacy involved there but if you just you're just pouring water into the same potentially sinking ship so i I thought i'd put some of my to switch from water to eggs to put some of my eggs in a different basket um i suppose and uh, but also just write the book i wanted to write as i wanted to write it i mean you know i i think there's something a bit dishonest about um, most uh, academic philosophy because it always report purports to be um, especially when it's about like kind of big questions and stuff as opposed to little tiny micro issues that only appear in philosophy but it's about sort of big question stuff it's always like purports to be sort of like um, you know objective kind of like from nowhere uh, you know as if anyone rational would, would, would think the things of philosopher things um, and that's not I don't think that's true I think you know um I think ideas reflect the conditions uh, under which they have come about and, and the conditions of the author's life in which they've come about. And writing a book like this was a way of, of making that clear, um, yeah. which is kind of more, more intellectually honest for me. And also, I mean, as you say, kind of people tell me it's people tell me it's relatable and I believe them. Um, you know, it makes it more relatable to the general reader because, um, you know, when there's a human being there, you can imagine people find that easier. It's like having a conversation. 
A hundred. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, what good writing should be. It makes me think of, I saw a tweet from this writer, uh, Siobhan Thompson, who writes on Rick and Morty now. And if I understand correctly, she's like a comedy writer out in, out in LA, but, but used to be a, a British academic and has like a master's in anthropology from the University of Bristol or something. And she had a tweet that was just like, after being out of academia for a bit, looking back, most academic writing is so bad. And she was reflecting on like becoming someone who wanted to write for popular culture that people would actually read and unlearning those habits. And I think that's something refreshing about reading a book like this. Um, before we like dive into the book, super heavy, one more preliminary question. Um, but what do you think it means to like write a work of, and, and I hope this doesn't offend you that I say this, like popular philosophy. And by that, I mean a, a book that uses philosophy to talk about stuff that a popular audience would like. I mean, what does that, what does that mean to you? Do you conceive of that in a different way than if you're trying to like write a convincing article about a paragraph from Adorno or for you, is it kind of like what you just said? You just like wrote what you wanted to write and who gives a fuck? That's what you wanted to do. Yeah. I tend to just write write what I want to write, but, um, I, I mean, I mean, like, you know, there's obviously kind of, uh, so, so I think my academic articles perhaps on, I always get, if when I have written academic articles, I've always been criticized by reviewers for not being dry enough. Um, I suppose uh, for like kind of not uh, being dry enough. Yeah. I, well, no, I mean, not in as many words. You know, it's kind of like, oh well, you know, I liked the style, but I wasn't sure that it was yeah. appropriate. Um, but uh, I mean, in terms of popular philosophy itself, I think there's like, uh, you know, there's lots of sort of sort of hacky sort of pop philosophy out there where it's just like the philosophy, the philosophy and X phenomenon are like, you know. Um, the philosophy of X phenomenon. It's just some sort of book which treats everything a bit sort of. It takes some pop culture thing and it adds some kind of su- superficial philosophy in it. It just, uh, you know, um, uh, it, it it doesn't really use it to illustrate anything deeper than, um, you know, well, you you people like this thing and yeah. uh, it's a bit like this, you know, um, and uh, um, I you know I think. Popular philosophy is, is is really good when you know it could even be in that kind of philosophy of X sort of format actually because obviously you know Weisskrank do lots of stuff like that but um you know but it's when it kind of makes a sort of like a deep it uses that stuff to kind of make a deeper point so the the um the philosophical ideas are in like genuine conversation with what's um yeah going on in in in, in the in the pop um you know uh, material. Um, and indeed, you know, the pop culture stuff or whatever can inform the philosophy, right? Actually, yeah. this uh, is one of my, actually, an academic article I currently have under review is essentially takes its cue from uh, the line in The Simpsons where Homer says, uh, weaseling out of things is important to learn. It's what separates us from the animals, except the weasel. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, talking about the human-animal distinction and how all philosophers, actually, when they talk about the distinction of human and animals, make a version of the error Homer does yeah. where you can separate us from all the animals except for, like, one that does it. I wish I could be in the room with the reviewer when they get your article and read the Homer Simpson quote. Um, well, well, to maybe jump then into the topic of your book, right? So, um, Infinitely Full of Hope, to, to reduce it to something really reductive because it does a lot of things is you talking about why you think it's cool to have kids going through the process of you and your partner kind of navigating morally and ethically what it means to be parents in this world. I think this is important because, you know, we did a video kind of recently um, at Wisecrack that talked about antinatalism and got into, um, oh, what's the South African guy that hates kids? Yeah, Benatar. We talked about Edelman and some other figures. And for, for anyone listening who doesn't know what you know, um, what anti-natalism is. Um, it's this idea that like, to be really reductive, that it's unethical to have kids, that like you shouldn't do it, whether that's because you're creating suffering or you're participating in some patriarchal heteronormative structure of power, or you're killing the planet by having kids. And in a lot of kind of like philosophical circles, leftist circles, edgy millennial circles, it's become a really common conversation about like, should we have kids? Is it bad? How could I do this morally? And I've been in settings with friends who have been like, I just don't know how anyone could have a kid right now, right? It's a thing that I think all of us have heard. So before you dive into that, 
Serbi, I'm curious about this. Is this something you ever like think about, talk about? I think we've like chatted about it a little bit yeah. on the show before, but like, I don't know in general, is that like a thing that comes up in, in your life talking to friends and what sort of stuff do you hear in those conversations? It does. It does a lot. And I think, um, so just in, in, in a previous episode, I did mention that I wanted kids so much. Like I was like, when I grow up, I want to be a mom. That would be amazing. Um, when you grow last- up, because you're currently 15. <laughs> I hope everyone yes. knows that Servi is a really exactly. smart 15 year old. I'm a child. So um, when, when I, I would say in the last six months, though, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel a lot more cautious and concerned. And I think that maybe I don't want to have children. And it's not because I don't love kids or don't want to be a mom, but just I feel uncomfortable with the idea um, of having a child right now or just bringing a child. And maybe I might adopt or something um, one day. But I do talk about this a lot with my friends. And I would say it's split 50-50. And my friends, meaning a lot of the the female friends that I have. So half already have children and the other half says they don't want kids for the same reasons. Um, so I think it's interesting the how much I've changed in six months. Um, maybe it's because of the pandemic or because I'm not in a relationship or whatever. It's given me more time to think or maybe just to question that it doesn't have to be the le- next logical step when you get older. It's not like a... a a necessary phase in my life cycle. It could just be like, I don't have to have kids. So yeah, I feel like I lost my train of thought halfway through that answer. Basically. No, just- no, that's, but that's good. And I do think it's interesting, sir, that you bring up the pandemic. Cause I've, I've known a few, I have a few friends who have had children during the pandemic. I think in a similar timeline, I imagine to, to Thompson, um, cause I have a few friends who have kids now they're like a year and a half, two years old, and they've reflected on how weird it's been to have the first year or two of their child's life be in that. I've heard some of them say the pro of it is that like they weren't commuting to jobs. So they were at home with their child spending time with it. Um, some other friends I've heard say the weird thing has been, they feel like their child is like under socialized because there's been big gaps where the only humans, the child has seen were like the parents. One of these kids actually went to its one year old, it's one year old birthday party. And it was one of the first kind of like post vaccinated events. And this kid looked so scared. Of Aww. all the people in there, and I kind of felt bad for him because it was like, oh, you didn't know there was others. You thought there was just the two. Oh, that's sad. Um, yeah, no, but but I but I think all that is relatable. So I, I, I guess then, uh, Tom, and this is you know just no thinking about it from the book. So you're pretty clear in the book that like you and your partner um, always knew you wanted to have children. That's something you thought would be fun, cool, good, um, inspiring, hopeful, all these things. So for you, like, did you start from a place of having your sort of like human brain that was like, yes, this is great. I want to create life with my partner and a bit of that, like, thinky philosophy brain that was like, but is this technically a good thing? Or, I mean, were you, did you exist in that space at all before you had had your child? Um, I mean, actually, to be honest, if I'm really honest, I think that, that, that kind of like thinky philosophy space actually only really opened up in the same way, like, once the child had been conceived and I saw okay. my son on, on the scan, which is, so it, you know, it, it came a bit too late, perhaps. Perhaps I wasn't thinking <laughs> enough. Um, you know, uh, I, I, in fact, I mean, before we did conceive a child, I, my, my worries were almost always, well, just like practical kind of economic um, sort of worries. Like, how, could we ever afford to have a child? Um, or, you know, would we have, would we, would I actually be physically sort of, able to look after a child, um, you know, those sorts of worries. Um, and then I saw my child on the scan, I was like, oh, shit, this is a person, right? <laughs> I have actual, du- I do actually have, you know, duties. Um, it isn't just something that we we want, it's something I have duties to. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, um, I, and I think, but I mean, it's kind of like, I suppose, in my defense, I think it's a lot easier to, to feel that you have duties to some some thing that exists as opposed to a merely hypothetical child you might not even have um so uh, yeah um the uh well, so is that, yeah that sort of covers that question doesn't it so yeah, yeah. so yeah the thinking philosophy stuff only was, was unfortunately too, so in, in it like 
if this is a, a, a criticism people would I think in a certain sense be right to to, to raise of the book which is that this is all kind of a sort of ad this is all sort of post facto justification for having children um, because child but um, I suppose uh, to, to answer that thought um, I would say well I mean I still do have an argument that you can kind of challenge so <laughs> you know um, I hope it's a good argument obviously it's an argument but I have yeah. Constructed. So one of the aspects of the book, I'm curious, you know, here you talk about this time and here you think about this, Serbi, um, is this idea that to be really crass with it, and everyone should read the book, um, but, but the idea that we can hope for things and part of what it means to have a child is that we can hope for a more collective we rather than an I. So that rather than only doing things because hopefully it makes my life better in having a child and, and helping it grow and, and be like a cool person and stuff. Um, I'm participating in hope for a future. And, and to really quickly divert into like philosophy land, um, some of that argument reminded me of like a French philosopher, Alain Bedieu, who is really into the idea of like, you know, collective subjects, so just groups of people um, that make something really cool happen. He calls that being immortal. Because it means that while you're not going to live forever like a vampire, if you're a part of a cool artistic movement or a scientific development or a romance or politics or whatever, you're participating in a thing that's going to live on after you. So that's like a little bit of what I was getting from the book, that, that having children is a way to like participate in acts of hope for the future, even if that means it's not like, <coughs> sorry, our future. Um, is that a f- fair interpretation of your work? It's a great, it's a great interpretation of my work. Yeah, you couldn't, I couldn't have put it better myself. I mean, hopefully, I mean, I might have put it better in the book. I don't know, but I, I, I couldn't put it better myself right now because I did write most of the book before I had a toddler. Um, but um, what I would say about, like, I think this is like the sort of, um, yeah, the sort of one of the most important points to me is, and one of the most important kind of experiences I. I've had in sort of becoming a, a parent. And one of the reasons I'd recommend parenthood is that once you have a sort of child, you don't really matter so much anymore. You know? Um you're, you're, you know, your um uh needs aren't really at the forefront of your life anymore. Um and um that's kind of really liberating. I think in the kind of society we have where we're meant to, you know, um uh you know act in our own sort of like selfish interest over time it's sort of wonderful to to have a reason not to wow um that's kind of beautiful serbi i know that you have to run soon because for everyone that doesn't know serbi has a really important job we'll never tell you what it is um it might be the fbi it might not be but serbi has to run a little bit serbi i want to make sure you have time um uh, i'm wondering if there's anything that you wanted to ask tom or or, or, or throw in as a grenade into the discussion before you have to skedaddle so what you're saying about um, having a child and it sort of adds another variable into the world. This is this is just me paraphrasing or whatever, but um, you add another variable into the world and then it could help the future. That's how I've always thought about when I wanted children was I'm going to raise considerate, empathetic, strong children that will hopefully do something really wonderful in the world one day. And whether that's on like a micro level with just helping individual people or a macro level and maybe go into some sort of function that would um, be able to affect positive change on a greater scale. However, I I wonder what, ha- like, I don't, I mean, do you know like why I changed? Like, is it, do you think it's anxiety? <laughs> do you think it's the pandemic? Like, because it was really just six months ago, I was like, no. Like, I can't do that. I still just can't have kids, even though I I wanted to have them for all the same reasons that you've you've discussed on this podcast in your book. And then suddenly it was like, no, I can't do it. Like, for me, I just can't do it. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I guess, I, you know, it's, it's obviously like this, like, you know, part of the idea is, that, you know, your kids might do things wonderful in the world. But I suppose, like, you know, there's obviously kind of very real concerns about that might just be so totally irrational but actually you know your kids for one thing is human beings right so just like every other human being right they're going to be flawed in all sorts of ways regardless of how good a parent you might happen to be um but also like there's a kind of um you know it's, it's 
it feels almost a bit like you're you're kind of passing the buck, right? You're going, well, you know, you you guys have to do it, but you know, you're, you're the next generation will sort it out. We can't, you know, we're we're too far gone, but we can, you know. So, um, yeah. So I guess like you know, what I would sort of em- emphasize in in kind of response to that would be the um, you know. In line with the stuff I've said about, you know, parenthood kind of like giving you a kind of reason not to act in your own selfish interest, you know, raising children uh, oughtn't to be something that, you know, you just do for your own kind of so to, um, to sort of placate your ego or to kind of, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an individual, as a, as a parent, right? Raising children is something kind of like, which also... Um, Ought to be done in a social uh, level, and once you have a once you have a child, um, I think this sort of becomes sort of become so obvious that um, we are not biologically meant to raise children in like two parent families, right? Children, small children, need vastly more attention than two human beings, no matter how dedicated, could possibly give them, um, and they need to see the world to explore things, right? Um, and this is what the pandemic, I think, has sort of really robbed children of, because it's sort of like legally, in, for you know, public health reasons, kept children in these sort of like typically very close, small household spaces, right? You know, if you have just one child and, and you, you're in a kind of cohabiting sort of couple. Yeah, I, I want to make sure, I'm going to interrupt only to say, uh, I think Servi has to go, so I want to make sure we give her a smooth out and allow her to say, we say bye to her. Um, and Servi, your job then is to, next episode, you're going to tell us if Tom has changed her mind and <laughs> yeah. you now on kids. So, um, Servi, we will catch you next time. Sorry that you have to run, but the FBI waits for no one. Bye, um, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Sorry, sorry, I didn't get to the end of my response. Oh, so no, I'm no. now on the Servi screen looking at just the side of my yes. head is. Your double screen. So everyone who's in the the stream is loving this right now. Um, I'm so that's so weird how one of them's different. Um, so so here's a question I have for you. Um, I mean, I think that like an interesting thing about hope. You talk about this in the book. Is I feel like sometimes it's caught between being conceived of as like a theological category in which hope becomes this fantastical thing, or like an aspect of messianic thought, where we're waiting for a savior or a messiah that's going to make things better. And that's why I like. You know, the examples you give about politics in the book, I think, work really well. Um, as, as a yank, I, of course, liked the Obama thing because it was this reminder of this, this political moment where there was this narrative of hope. Everyone got really excited. And I even remember I was, um, I was living in Scotland during the 2008 election. And I remember when Obama won, all of my like European friends were just like, yeah, they were like so hyped. And I was like, holy shit, being an American doesn't feel bad right now. People actually, you know, my like German friends are like, hey, not so bad. And I was like, cool. But, you know, that we all know how that turned out. Right. Because I think what we learned from that example, and I think we saw this with 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 Corbyn a little bit and and some other recent political figures is we all secretly just want the Messiah to do it for us. So hope becomes a mechanism of thank God this person on TV is, is going to do the thing for me or whatnot. Um, you know, I think politically hope is really different. I think that's right. The Greta Thunberg example you bring up is good. Um, when hope becomes political, it's about, okay, here's what we're hoping for. And that is orienting our praxis. We're going to do stuff to work towards this like hoped outcome. Um, and I think you handle that really well in the book. Something I wonder about though, with children and hopefulness is like, how much, and hopefully this tracks, that distinction affects the way people approach children. I'll give this example. I've had, you know, friends and family who are very, let's say, politically progressive, community oriented, think, and, you know, this is a big debate in the States is like sort of public schools versus private schools, state funding for education versus education that's based on who can afford the fanciest schools. And, you know, I've known people who are very progressive left-leaning politically, but when they have a kid, all of a sudden, they make exceptions, right? So it's no longer about public school is important for my children. It's, well, public school is good in theory, but my Messiah needs to go to the most elite private school. And then there's actually, um, I heard a good podcast with MSNBC host Chris Hayes talking about this and being honest about like becoming a rich dude 
and that being in conflict with, you know, his personal politics. On the flip side, you know, I've, I've known people and, and, and heard of people who, for them, having children has actually made them think more universally because they start to think like not just about their family and their child, but whether it be the environment or a political system or education of the world around them. So I'm just wondering, this is something you've thought about, something, whether you thought about this speculatively or just experienced at the individual level, how having a child can create a new tension in, in what is important and whether it's more of like this magical spiritual importance of the child or more of like a social political importance of the world the child lives in. Hopefully that makes sense. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely say I would want to emphasize the social and political importance of the world the child lives in. I mean, um, you know, if nothing else, having a child who you love uh, will, will um, it gives you something else. As well, it's about you sort of not acting into your own selfish interest sort of thing. It gives you kind of an additional sort of stake in the world. Um, but of course, as with everything, we need, and I, I talk about this to, towards the end of the book, you know, we need to navigate what that means in the same way that we need to navigate what pretty much every, you know, challenge we face in our life might mean. Um, and I, you know, you can, obviously you can, you can see why people would, who, you know, believe in sort of education to be, you know, universal state fund or something, might end up sending their children to, their own children to private school because state schools, as they actually exist, they might, you know, it might not be sort of um, functioning. And you, if you can save your child from, from, um, from an environment you feel isn't going to be good for them, then, um, you know, of course, you can see why someone would do that. Um, but, uh, you know, you, I suppose... In those situations where what you sort of feel inclined to do as a parent come up against your political convictions, you know, the thing to do is to, to find some way of, of navigating it better, right? Um, you know, um, in, in in that sort of situation as described, it doesn't really sound like either option is, is adequate as is. Yeah. Um, so then you've got to think, well, what else can I do? I mean, how is there a way of sending... Of, of you know, sending of being able to send my show or being able to kind of fighting for a better uh, state school system. I mean, in obviously in reality, one of the reasons why state school systems fail is because richer parents take their kids out of uh, yeah. out of school, and then politicians feel able to slash budgets. Um, so obviously, you know, when you're if you're kind of thinking about this at all, you know that you are part of the problem, um, as I'm sure this guy he yeah. does. Yeah. No, that's that's. That's good. I, there's a question from the chat, actually, from uh, someone who, who shares some commonalities with both of us, and that uh, it's a uh, former academic philosopher who left for the, the, the popular writing world, um, philosopher and screenwriter Justin Boyd in the chat says this. He says, well, so much hope rhetoric um, covertly assumes that there is some solution out there, guaranteed somewhere, so that even if we aren't smart enough to figure it out, someone will. And then he says, and that's not true. So I wonder what you make of that, this idea that a lot of rhetoric around hope, and I think this this does kind of relate to like the theological type of hope we were talking about. So what do you make of that? The idea that like hope rhetoric assumes that like, even if we can't make the world better, some magical person in the future will. And whether or not that's a way to think about it, helpful to think about it, or just straight up not true. So I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I think it's it's true in so far as hope as a concept only really emerges in conditions of uncertainty, right? Um, so, I mean, if you knew that someone was going to come along and solve it, then you wouldn't need to be hopeful because you just have knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, so, yeah, um, I mean, the question then is what do you do about uncertainty, right? How are you going to orient yourself towards it? I mean, in the book, this is part of my argument, but um, you... I, I want to argue that you're not kind of properly hopeful if you kind of orient yourself <coughs> passively towards that uncertainty and you kind of just go, well, you know, maybe something will happen, maybe it won't, um, you know, if it's God's will or whatever, then and if something will happen, someone will come and save it to me. Uh, or like, you know, uh, you, know which, which you could you could say God in that situation, you could say kind of future generations of, of human beings, oh, they'll, they'll find something sorting it out, right? who cares, right? Um, I think the... 
you know, I want to, what I want to argue is that the properly hopeful way to orient yourself in that uncertainty is to kind of find ways of actively um, bringing, bringing about better states of affairs, basically. Um, and, you know, of course, when you're oriented towards that rationally, it might at some point come about where you just go, there's nothing I can do, right? There's nothing anyone can do. But again, the kind of, the, the, you know, the sort of right way of seeing that, to my mind, is to, is to not go easily into despair. I, right now, there is a tendency for people to go very easily into despair. Mm-hmm. Because despair can be very comforting, because if you're in total despair, or if you kind of, you act as if you are, you don't need to do anything, do you? If you go, well, we're fucked, the world's going to end anyway, regardless of what I, I or anyone else does, we're doomed, then you can just live your life as you were. Right? You don't have to change anything. But if you take seriously the possibility of doing something, of things being different, then you actually do have to do things that are different, regardless of whether or not you know they're going to work. Yeah, I mean, that's why I, I like the way you used Kierkegaard in the book and talking about, you know, his concept of despair. Because, of course, I think when it comes to both like despair and anxiety, Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, yada, 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 if you don't know who he is, Wikipedia. Um, but, yeah, I mean, gets at the, the debilitating aspects of despair and I do think this isn't just like blowing smoke up your ass either. There's something slightly Kierkegaardian about your book in that, you know, Kierkegaard often in his writing, whether it's via his own voice or via these pseudonymous characters, lets us know how he's feeling about stuff. So when Kierkegaard writes about despair, he's writing from a position of despair and you feel bad for the guy, like this sad Danish rich boy all alone, drinking too much coffee and feeling bad. But but of course, you know, for, for Kierkegaard, there is this, you know, solution that, that, that looks like faith. You make the point in the book that like, okay, but a lot of it for him boils down to, well, you know, God. And you're like, well, you know, I'm not looking for a theological solution. But that's why I've always thought like Kierkegaard is interesting structurally because it's sort of like, well, there has to be a level of, of faith commitment, hope that gets you out of that. And I do think that's why like there's an interesting uh, commonality between, you know, good Lutheran Kierkegaard and some sort of like 20th century post-Marxist thinkers like Bedu who have a similar argument about like fidelity and hope and the kind of pull from the Christian tradition there. So, uh, and I, but I do like, I don't know, I'm someone who kind of sees and struggles with that tension, right? Sometimes I think, yes, if we are oriented around some hope and there's some project there the future is uncertain but that doesn't mean that you know to to use the corny quote that like a better world is impossible then there's a part of my brain sometimes it's like are you just like using philosophy as a coping mechanism because the planet's literally dying and there's probably nothing we can do um and i definitely like oscillate between those two i i I have those thoughts when i think about having children and to, to be fair, cause you're so vulnerable and honest in the book. Like, you know, I, I currently am not too far away from my, my partner and myself potentially trying to have kids. And it's just, yeah, it's a thing that's so hard to not go back and forth between this idea that like, yes, hope is possible. A better world is possible. We have all these examples in history uh, of people collectively doing amazing things. And on the other side, well, if there's no more water or air to breathe, no amount of, uh, you know, good intellectual thinking is going to save you. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, but, but yeah, that's obviously a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry to throw but, that up. Um, yeah. Just like throwing stuff at the wall, but yeah. No, um, I, obviously, I think there are kind of like kind of uh, open issues about you know faith and whether faith can be rational or sort of more or less rational, that sort of thing. Um, you know. Um, or whether it has to be bestowed by grace, or whether you can choose to have it, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose like I've been using this argument when I've been talking about the book, which is that, um, well, so I mean, if you just have like, you know, if you just have one child, right, firstly, you've not, um, you're still below the replacement level of fertility. So in that sense, if you're worried about there being too many people, um, you're, you're, the human race is still you know, retracting, as it were. Yeah. But um, uh, secondly, God, you know how bad it's going to be if on top of there being, you know, drought and everything, wildfires, if there's also a a massive social care crisis because there's a, like, this cliff edge of aging population where no no one, hardly anyone in the generation has children. And, like, you know, I mean... 
this is the sort of thing that I don't think any society is it's even like roughly kind of organized as the way we have it now would possibly be able to deal with um so that's a i mean that's a different apocalypse right <laughs> yeah no that's that's interesting um we'll we'll kind of like lean towards wrapping up i could ask you questions about this for hours but i know you have a life and a human life to take care of so well, yeah i've got to i've got to help him with, with i mean I'm, it's 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 six seven here i'm not yeah, meant yeah. to keep my bath yeah so I'll, I'll ask you like one one quick question we'll wrap up um in reading this book, I had a question or just thought: Is is Tom covertly arguing for a sort of humanism? Yes. So, okay, cool, simple as that. That's great. Um, so, are you going to elaborate on that? No, that's simple. I just wanted to know that. Um, yes, is 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 all I needed to hear there. I think that's that's how I was reading your book, and that's how I was reading the Kierkegaardian question you bring up early on: What do we replace this faith in God with? And I was like, oh, maybe like a faith in humanity and the possibility of humanity. That's totally fine. Um, last question: I'll ask you. We'll let you go, and I might just do the mailbag myself real quick because um, I want to do that. Um, how do you see moving forward after this book? Have you thought at all about? what you see your role um and it's going to sound pretentious maybe or pretentious assumption what do you see the role of like philosophy and in your case being a philosopher in in this world and especially doing that outside the hallowed halls of academia um what does that mean for you to keep doing philosophy well yeah i think um you know i can't remember the exact way he puts it but adorno who comes off in the book quite a lot you know, puts it, you know, philosophy, the point of philosophy is to kind of, is, is to try, is, 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 is aimed against Wittgenstein. So Wittgenstein famously said, you know, of what you, you, you cannot speak, we must remain silent. Mm-hmm. And said, well, that's, you know, that's exactly unphilosophical because the point of philosophy is to try and say the things that we can't make sense of. Um, and um, that's, I mean, that's what kind of, I suppose actually this relates to the question about popular philosophy. It's all kind of popular philosophy or kind of like properly applied philosophy does is, you know, it, it, it's to my mind, it, it, it takes these questions where, you know, these kind of confusions where people really don't seem to be able to talk about the thing they really need to be able to talk about or to conceive the thing they really need to be able to conceive and to be able to, to name it and to understand it. Um, and and must help us deal with it. Um, and certainly in the age of uh, climate change, I mean, what we're dealing with here is a phenomenon that we don't really understand. I mean, we're not um, all the all the evidence, suggest, uh, as far as I understand it, suggests that human intelligence uh, evolved in order to help us deal with big cats um, and to 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 stop us from being killed by big cats. And we're only human level intelligence is really good at identifying kind of concrete salient threats um and and eliminating them but climate change isn't really like that because it's sort of everywhere and it's happening all the time and incrementally and it's always sort of weird different ways we don't expect um and we need to be able to think differently in order to be able to act transformatively um and so yeah philosophy has a a, a big role there um, which is why it's good, but nobody funds it. <laughs> yeah, why would we fund that? Um, that's that's great. Well, uh, truly, Tom, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I do encourage everyone get Tom's book. Um, or if you're if you're cheaper, you can't afford it. Yeah, hold the book up. Oh, so um, it's white, so you can't really. I like the cover a lot. Yeah, I'm really pleased with the cover. Yeah, that's the hardest thing with philosophy books is getting good covers. You got a good cover. But also, if you're not convinced yet, um, there's a great um, op-ed Tom has in the New York Times, which is, is some short excerpts from the book. I really enjoyed a lot of your writing at the outline when that website still existed, but it's still it still is it's still live. You can go read that so you can look at Tom's writing there. Um, also, if you're a Wisecrack fan, Tom's been writing videos for us. So if you haven't noticed that yet, go try to find which ones are his. He has one we're working on right now that I'm so excited about. It's going to be the first time we talk about it. I think you should leave on Wisecrack, and I can't wait. Um, before I let you go, Tom, where can people find you on social media um, if they want to see your musings on Twitter or other platforms? Where do they do that? Um, health unto death. Health unto death, a play on Kierkegaard. Yeah, Adorno's pun on Kierkegaard. So you can you can tell that I was I just started my PhD when I came up with that handle. 
I like that you committed to it. So everyone go follow Tom at Health Unto Death. Um, and Tom, hopefully you can come back sometime just to talk about other stuff with us. We will let you get going and take care of your child. So thank you so much for being here. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Later, Tom. Um, so that was that was Tom, everyone. Um, what we'll do real quick then, guys, is I'm just going to do a couple emails because we're here. You wrote a lot of great ones. Um, a reminder is always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that. And you should do that. And you can do that by hitting us up at, um, wait, let me remember the address. I forgot to put this in my notes. I'm very embarrassed right now. Maddie, if you're on the line, you can remind me. Is it culture at wisecrack.co? I think it is. I think that's how you get in touch with us. Here we go. I got it now. Um, yeah, culturebinge at wisecrack.co. Write us an email. Let us know what you think about uh, Tom's uh, discussion, his book, anything else we talked about, or call us at 213-534-8807. That's 213-534-8807, culturebingewisecrack.co. I'll just quickly go through a couple emails we have this time. Um, so this is from Brian. Uh, this is about last week's episode. Brian says, I'm sorry to hear that you've been struggling with COVID. I hope this email finds you a much better health. Thank you. Uh, it really means a lot. Says, I'm writing a comment on your Olympic episode. I'm from Puerto Rico, and anytime an athlete comp competes representing our flag, it's a very big deal. As I'm writing this email, we just won our second gold medal in Olympic history. Um, Jasmine Camacho Quinn, women's 100 hurdle. That race was awesome. Puerto Rico has a complex history with the U.S., and as of late, on the island has become unbearable for your average Puerto Rican. I've had to say goodbye to many friends, family members, and family members who would have probably lived out their lives here had it not been for the ongoing economic, social, and political crisis. He says, I lose access to power and water at least twice a month due to the poor state of our infrastructure. Having an Olympic delegation gives us at least something to look forward to. Seeing them compete, even if they don't win, is a slap in a sea of chaps. Well put. Maybe there's a little bit of escapism in it too. P.S. I really enjoyed listening to Raymond on this episode. Maybe considering him in the running for permanent host. Thank you. That's good to hear. Glad you liked Raymond. And I think, it, Brian, you didn't know this, but this obviously relates to this episode. Talking about hopefulness in the way in which something as simple as Olympic athletes competing for a country that's going through a really bad time uh, can symbolize hope. I think that's great. Um, Zach also wrote in about the Olympics. Zach said, let me start by saying this channel is amazing. Thank you, Zach. Everything Wisecrack has created has propelled me on my philosophical journey. I think you're going to like this episode then, Zach. Uh, he says, so let's begin. In response to the question, should we have the Olympics? I might also answer questions like, should I listen to R. Kelly? Should I buy from Amazon? Should I take notes with a pen and paper? Should I use my MacBook Air Pro Nano 2.0 indestructible touchscreen? My answer may sound pessimistic with a hint of optimism. Morality is impossible. Follow me on this one. Everything you do or don't has moral implications in a negative way. The Olympics are harmful for all the ways you've discussed and more. R. Kelly is a monster and multiple people are attached to a single product. The fun and free music of Kesha is undercut by her abusive producer. A pen is made from plastic and paper, comes from deforestation, um, contrasted to everything Apple as a company does. The point I'm trying to articulate is that every action has an equal and horrific reaction. I guess that's a principle of physics. He goes on to say, but what if I didn't watch the Olympics or I only took mental notes instead of storing my writing in the cloud or a hard drive? My answer is someone else will. It only takes one person to fuck it up for everyone else. He, I, I just want to be clear, he put asterisks in there. I just said fuck. I'm so sorry if you didn't want to swear and I made you. Have you heard the idea that a satellite can collide with another satellite and create an exponential amount of debris? Technically, it takes one. Um, so basically, the, the gist here is that you know, the world is kind of screwed. There is no morality under capitalism. So you might as well watch the Olympics. I think Zach has an interesting point there. And I do think that something we can be tempted towards, which is dangerous, is to make the stakes of our personal morality universal. And I know there's some people that'll be like, well, boycott watching the Olympics and it'll help. But it like probably won't. Um, although the one point I disagree with him is like, I just can't listen to R. Kelly. It feels too gross. Um, we'll just do one more email real quick. Thank you to everyone as always who wrote in and called. It means a lot to us. We read them all. We appreciate it. There is no culture range without you. Uh, Letitia wrote this in. This is about the subject of taking time off from work. Uh, Letitia says, on the subject of feeling guilty for taking time off, this video aired a week and a few days before my vacation was scheduled. Either that day or next week, our deli manager asked me if I wanted to skip my vacation because we're so shorthanded. New hires never last. One department manager is out on injury and the other just put in her two weeks, probably because she's sick of asking the grocery store manager to allow more people to work in our bakery deli. I really thought about it, but decided to take vacation as school starts soon. And this is my last chance to take two consecutive days off probably for the rest of the year. I did agree to be available two days during my vacation, but my other coworker insisted I don't come in because they had it covered. Um, that's great, Leticia. I'm glad that you like stood up for yourself and took 
vacation there. It's so hard sometimes with jobs, right? To have this like moral thing. Um, but I'm a managing, uh, I, I, you know, Leticia tells us she works in a grocery and, you know, unless it's like a local grocery, it's probably owned by a multi-million dollar company and people that own it are making tons of money. So I think Leticia should not have to take the brunt of that, but that's the moral tension we talked about last time. So thank you for those emails. Once again, you can hit us up at a culture at wisecrack.co or 213-534-8807. Um, Serby's not here to say this, but we can put her uh, Twitter bio or Twitter, Twitter uh, username up on the screen. But you can check Serby out on Twitter if you, I don't know, if you haven't already. Um, you can check me out at, at Michael O. Burns on Twitter and Instagram. Obviously, once again, thanks to Tom Wyman for being here. Check him out at Health Unto Death. Um, check out his book, Infinitely Full of Hope. And I shit you guys not. Um, I stayed up last night and read it, finished it this morning. It's a really cool read. And I think if you're interested in philosophy, if you're interested in like the ethics of having children, and even if you're interested in this idea of like how can we hope for stuff when the world feels so shitty, I think it's great. It's not... You know, I have arguments with some of it. It's not a perfect book. No book is a perfect, perfect book, but you should check it out. Um, so we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks again for being here with us. Check out videos on Wisecrack. Look at the Patreon. Hit us up if you need to. And we'll see you in the meantime. For Serbian Tom, this is Michael. We'll see you next time on Culture Binge. <laughs>